No, the half will never be told. I don't even know if a quarter will be told, a little bitty bit. The unsearchable riches of Christ in saving a sinner. Well, we're still in Matthew 25. Had quite a few parables there, interesting ones. We're going to finish up tonight on the parable of the talents, verses 24 through 30. This is the portion we're on. I guess I can read you the whole thing. We can start with verse 14. For the kingdom of heaven is as a man traveling into a far country, who called his own servants and delivered unto them his goods. And unto one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one. To every man according to his several ability, straightway took his journey. Then he that had received the five talents went and traded with the same and made them another five talents. And likewise he that had received two, he also gained another two. But he that had received one went and digged in the earth and hid his Lord's money. And after a long time the Lord of those servants cometh and reckoneth with them. And so that he had received five talents came and brought another five talents, saying, Lord, thou deliverest unto me five talents. Behold, I have gained beside them five talents more. His Lord said unto him, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. He also that had received two talents came and said, Lord, thou deliverest unto me two talents. Behold, I have gained two other talents beside them. His Lord said unto him, Well done, good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I'll make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Then he which had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew thee that thou wert an hard man, reaping where thou hast not sown and gathering where thou hast not strawed. And I was afraid and went and hid thy talent in the earth. Lo, thou hast that there, thou hast that that is thine. His Lord answered and said unto him, Thou wicked and slothful servant, thou knewest that I reap where I sow not and gather where I have not strawed. Thou oughtest therefore to have put my money to the exchangers, and then at my coming I should have received my own with usury. Take therefore the talent from him, and give it unto him which hath ten talents. For unto every one that hath shall be given, and he that hath, and he shall have abundance. But from him that hath not shall be taken away even that which he hath. And cast ye the unprofitable servant into outer darkness, and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Awful ending, isn't it? Let's bow our heads. Father, we ask thy blessing upon our teaching tonight, upon expounding on the parable of the talents and seeing the need of improving any gift that thou hast given us and to know that all the things that we have come from thee. Teach us tonight. We ask in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. We want to zero in tonight on this one person who represents unbelieving mankind. He has life given to him, but didn't do a thing to improve his soul. Now, there is a main reason and several others for him to be called a wicked and a slothful servant. 
first of all, Christ does not own him as one of his sheep. Here's what the Lord says about his sheep. Turn to John 10. Look at 14, 27, and 28. John 10, 14, 27, and 28. I am the good shepherd and know my sheep and am known of mine. Verse 27. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, and neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Now the major factor there is that he knows his sheep, and they know him. His sheep are believers in the Son of God who own him as their all in all. Christ is everything to a believer. We know from the parable that this person with one talent did not know Christ or even know about him by the outrageous description he gives of, of the only perfect, sinless person to walk on this earth. He said he's a hard and a steward man and he, he gathers where he doesn't straw and he just makes him out to be a terrible person. See, he didn't know Christ at all. And if he didn't know Christ, then he's in the same bracket with the foolish virgins. Stay in this chapter, John, I mean, uh, Matthew 25, but look at verse 12. Matthew 25 and verse 12. But he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. And in that parable there was five of them that looked identical to the five that were saved. Now, those foolish virgins, what he says to them, they were sincerely wrong hypocrites, just like those in Matthew 7.23. So hold your place in Matthew 7.25 and look at Matthew 7.23. And Matthew 7.23 says, And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. You see, the, the main key to all of this is Christ knowing the sinner and the sinner knowing Christ. In both places, our Lord says, I never knew you. It would be the same here. Christ knowing the sinner is an interesting story, for it goes back a little before the time that a person can remember. Now, how long ago did God know the sinner? Well, let's look at a fine written example. Look at the Lord teaching Jeremiah. Turn to Jeremiah 1, verse 4 and 5. Jeremiah 1, verses 4 and 5. It's going to inform Jeremiah here about something he may not have had too much knowledge about. Then the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee, and I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. Then David declares the same thing in Psalm 139, 13. 
Psalm 139, 13. For thou hast possessed my range, thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. Something. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth, and that my soul knoweth right well. My substance was not hid from thee when I was made in secret, and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. And thine eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect. And in thy book all my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. See, same language that he talked, talked to Jeremiah about before he was ever formed. God knew him. Interesting. Well, here uh, David, though, just said... Uh, Verse 16, thine eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect, and in thy book all my members are. What book are you talking about, David? Why, the Lamb's book of life, with all the names of the elect entered before there was a world. Interesting, huh? David knew about a book. Let's look at that book in Revelation 13, 8. Revelation 13, 8. Last part of that verse, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. It's the, it's the Lamb's book. It's called the book of life, and we find it again in the last, in the 20th, 20th chapter of Revelation where the white throne judgment is, or is it 21st? Let me see now. Got to say it right here. It's in the 20th chapter of Revelation, the same book of life. But it belongs to the Lamb. And he was the one slain before the world was ever created, what it just told us. Slain in God's mind, in God's eyes. You want to see it again? Look at Revelation 17, 8. Revelation 17, 8. The beast that thou sawest was and is not and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition. And they that dwell on the earth shall wonder whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. There it is again. Interesting. How it always pops up when Antichrist seems to be having a heyday. Here it comes. Nuh-uh, not those with the land written in the Lamb's book of life. So this person, using the Lord as an excuse, the one with the one talent, for his ungodly life said that he hid his talent in the earth. The Lord of the unprofitable servant tells him that the fault lay in his own sloth and wickedness. And his dread of his Lord's severity was only but a mere frivolous pretense and unreasonable excuse. Now listen, if he had dreaded any such thing as he said, he would have done what he could. And God will justly reply to those at Judgment Day, those who think to excuse their lustful, wicked lives, their unbelief, their willful ignorance, from their not being elected. Oh, I didn't, I wasn't elected, so I, uh-uh, oh, no, no, no. 
person that figures then knows they're not elected, they better look into it. Then you can make your calling and election sure. You will then appeal to God before it's too late. If you did fear that you weren't elected, why did you not give all diligence to make your calling and election sure? Look at 2 Peter 1.10. 2 Peter 1.10. This is for anybody who reads the book. I know it was written to those that have like precious faith, but it's going to fall into others' hands, and whoever reads it, it belongs to them. Wherefore, the rather brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure, for if you do these things, you shall never fall. Now, faith comes by hearing, reading, and praying. You had power to improve those talents. If you took me to be so, so severe a master, why did you not do what was in your power to do? Now, anybody can pray, anybody can read, anybody can hear. He didn't use his power to do that. Wicked men do not improve spiritually at all. They will be charged with this at judgment day. They do not use the means nor cry to God for faith to enable them to believe, but sin against the light of their conscience. They hate the light, and they love darkness rather than light. That's a general description of all natural men. It's in John 3.19. John 3.19. This is the condemnation, that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Now another part of our parable here says he digged in the earth. Well, let's take a look at that. That's verse 18. But he that had received one talent went and digged in the earth and hid his Lord's money. Now, what is meant by digging in the earth and hiding the Lord's money? Digging may signify his laboring for nothing. Look at John 6.27. John 6.27 It says, labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you. For him hath God the Father sealed. Labor not for the meat which perisheth. And then Isaiah 55, 2. This is great. Isaiah 55, 2. Wherefore do you spend money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which satisfieth not? Hearken diligently unto me, and eat that which is good, and let your soul delight itself in fatness. Now this fellow is minding earthly things, being busy chasing after things in the world, not improving the knowledge he had of spiritual things or the means of grace that are announced in the gospel. 
Hiding his talent may denote his concealing those convictions that he might have had in his conscience about sin and duty. Let's bring it down to today. Many today do the same thing. Dig into the earth and hide their talent. They have dozens of earthly concerns. They have so much personal business to attend to. They are carried away with self-love and the love of pleasure so much that they can't find or take the time to worship, obey, and serve the Lord Jesus Christ. The love of the world is in their heart, and they never give a thought to the care of their soul and of eternal things. It isn't so much of thinking about church or thinking about your duty. It's thinking about your soul, the most important thing that you have, your own soul. So by hiding your talent, you will show that either you are ashamed or afraid to own and confess Jesus Christ, or else you have an earthly heart and are idle and slothful persons in spiritual matters. Either of these shows the wickedness of your heart something that the normal man never finds out, but it's in Jeremiah 17, 9, which says, The heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. Who can know it? That means everyone's heart. And to add insult to injury, people who do not care about their own soul are said to have an unsound mind. I like this one, 2 Timothy 1, 7. 2 Timothy 1.7 You mean doctors, professors, lawyers, educators? That's who we're talking about. 2 Timothy 1.7 For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Those that don't belong to the us don't have a sound mind. The only person who has a sound mind is the one that's concerned about their own soul. The rest of the world is crazy, and they don't know it. If they knew it, they would come to the Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. Now, how do God's children improve their talents? They gain spiritual knowledge. It's by exercise they increase in the knowledge of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ. In grace, they make their small faith to become a bigger faith or great faith. They gain more love, more patience, more meekness, like Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 5 through 7. So let's see what Peter says. 1 Peter 1, 5 through 7. who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. 
whom having not seen ye love, in whom though now ye see him not yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Can you ever learn enough about Christ? No, you can't. If you just try to measure the love of Christ, our little human yardstick just doesn't stretch far enough. Let's take a look at Ephesians 3, verse 17. Ephesians 3, verse 17 through 19. That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge, that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. In another place, Romans 11.33, let's look at that. Romans 11.33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Paul uses the words unsearchable and past finding out to really destroy the human yardstick. Faith comprehends and measures that which cannot be seen. Faith is the yardstick of the Christian. But look at Hebrews 11, verses 1 through 3. Hebrews 11, 1, uh, 11, yeah, 1 through 3. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, for by it the elders obtained a good report through faith. We understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. Our Lord spoke them into existence. And now that we have said that God's people improved their talents, did any of this improvement merit salvation? or add to their righteousness in any way. You see, folks get the wrong idea from this parable that if you improve your talent, you earn your salvation. Well, let's take a look at Titus 3, verses 3 through 8. Titus, right after the Timothys. Titus 3, 3 through 8. For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving divers' lust and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But after that the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You see, after the change, after they have believed in God, though they 
are careful to maintain good works. You see, it's after the regeneration you maintain good works. Now, the Lord's commendation should cheer our hearts. Well done, good and faithful servant. You realize our Lord is talking to you. You, by knowing yourself better than anyone else can say, what Luke 17.10 says. Well, let's see what that says. Luke 17.10 So likewise ye, when ye shall have done all those things which are commanded, you say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done that which was our duty to do. Or as Paul tells us about our reasonable service in Romans 12.1, he says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And then to say that we will rule over many things, us who can't rule over our corrupt hearts, who scarcely are saved. Look at 1 Peter 4, verses 18 and 19. 1 Peter 4 18 and 19. And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and sinner appear? Wherefore let them that suffer according to the will of God commit their keeping other souls to him and well-doing as unto a faithful creator. You see, the improving of your talents is your well-doing. We shall be rulers. Can you believe that? By his grace and power, we can do all things. Look at Revelation 5.10. Revelation 5.10. And hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. Now turn to 1 Corinthians 6. Look at verses 2 and 3. 1 Corinthians 6, 2 and 3. This thing about reigning on earth, a lot of folks don't believe it's ever going to happen. Are you kidding? God's word says it is. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 2. Do ye not know that the saints shall judge the world? And if the world shall be judged by you, are ye unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Know ye not that ye that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? Did you know we're going to judge angels? I don't think he's ever appointed an angel to judge an angel. It says we're going to judge angels. Can you hardly imagine such a thing? Well, now let's look at verse 30 in our Matthew 25, verse 30. Here's a conclusion, and cast ye the unprofitable servant into outer darkness, and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Outer darkness 
gets mentioned several times in this book of Matthew. Back up a little bit to Matthew twenty-two thirteen. Twenty-two thirteen. You can read verse 12 along with it. This was about the wedding supper. Here's somebody trying to crash the party. And he saith unto him, Friend, how camest thou in hither not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then said the king to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, take him away, and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, what we read over here in Matthew 25 says, Cast him into outer darkness, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Well, there's one more we want to read. It's in Matthew 8, 12. Matthew 8, 12. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness, and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, every single time the outer darkness is mentioned, it also says there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Who does this mentioning all the time? You guessed it. The Lord himself is the one talking about it. He is talking about something very vivid to himself. He, being God, can picture this and see it in his mind. That's why he says there's going to be outer darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth. He, as God, has seen and heard. He talked about being before Abraham. Look at John 8:56. John 8:56. He says, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then said the Jews unto him, Thou art not yet fifty years old, and hast thou seen Abraham? And Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Before Abraham was, I am. The great I am of the Old Testament, the Jehovah of the Old Testament. Of course he was before Abraham. He's God. He talked about hell where the worm never dies. That's in Mark 9, verse 44, 46, and 48. Let's look at that just a moment. Mark 9. Forty-four, forty-six, forty-eight. Where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. Verse forty-six. Where their worm dieth not, the fire is not quenched. Verse forty-eight. Where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. Now the only place where that was mentioned in the Old Testament is in, a, is in Isaiah sixty-six twenty-four. Turn over there and look at it. Isaiah sixty-six twenty-four. And they shall go forth and look upon the carcasses of the men 
that have transgressed against me. For their worm shall not die, and neither shall their fire be quenched, and they shall be an abhorring unto all flesh. Now that's a scene from the lake of fire after the white throne judgment. And our Lord could see it very, very clearly when he spoke in Mark. He's the one also that could see it very clearly in Isaiah 66, 24. This is God's word. Now, if this is in outer darkness, the white throne judgment, I don't know. Now, the weeping means that they're sorry for themselves. The gnashing of the teeth is that they're mad at God. Both go hand in hand, and they're in outer darkness. Is that what hell is like? Maybe it is. Now, now they know that there is a God who rules and reigns. They weep and they gnash their teeth. It's something, isn't it? Our Lord is not one to compromise in a situation like the five virgins that thought they were just like the others. They were ignorant and maybe willfully ignorant or maybe blissfully ignorant, thinking they were going in. And the righteous do-gooders of our day and time would say, well, now God should, should think about at least their good intentions and just say, well, okay, you, you, you can squeeze in. We can take another one. No, God's, God's wrath and his justice is against sin. And anybody whose sin is not paid for is certainly not going in. When he says, I never knew you, that goes back to eternity. And then when it returns back to reality, it's where the sinner comes to meet and to learn to know the Lord Jesus Christ is a lost sinner. When you come as a lost sinner begging for mercy, that's when you get to know the Lord Jesus Christ. He's very precious to you. And when he reveals himself to your heart, you're beside yourself. You just can't imagine that it's you. You just can't imagine that that burden is gone. That there's no more cry for mercy. That's what's so different about it. One moment you're begging for mercy, and the next moment the Lord said he's died for you. And all you can do is say thank you. And you'll thank him for the rest of your life. Thank him and thank him and thank him and thank him. Well, that's going to be the end of this parable. Let's see what we've got for next week now. Oh, okay, I, I'm, I've been waiting for these, these verses to come up here. Verse 31. When the Son of Man shall come in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, and of course you know who else is coming with him, when the saints shall come to be admired in him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. You see, people today kind of think 
that the Lord Jesus Christ is sitting on his throne. No, he's sitting on his Father's throne right now, not on his, but he's going to come. His second coming, then he'll sit upon the throne of his glory. That's what we're going to have next week. Let's bow our heads. Father, we ask thy blessing upon this gospel message tonight, upon the teaching of thy word. We ask thee to teach our hearts, make Christ real. That's the important thing. Whether we've hit right on doctrine, whether we've said things right or wrong concerning the way the story goes, the important thing is, is that folks get to know Christ. Only those that can know him can improve upon their talents. And those things, the best of the talents, is grace and mercy that God gives to his own. We thank you for that. What makes us to differ? Nothing but thy grace. Nothing we have done, nothing we can say, positively nothing on our part. Our Lord Jesus Christ is our all in all. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. You're all dismissed.